very fundamentals of the idea of India are being questioned right now. And I think a lot is at stake because, you know, it would be a tragedy if India ceased to be democratic. It's a great liberal democratic experiment. And now The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Welcome to the podcast that searches for the ideas, policies and strategies that can beat authoritarian populists like Donald Trump over the next four years and the next 40. For the last years, there's been a big debate about the impact of populism. Some people like me have argued that populists can do real damage to democratic institutions when you look, for example, at countries like Hungary. Others have responded that populists might not be so bad after all, that a lot of them don't tend to do great damage to their countries because they are chaotic and are thrown out as soon as they are elected. Or that they might even be solitary, that they actually hold failed elites to account and improve democracy where they are elected. Well, to settle this really important question, I teamed up with my colleague Jordan Kyle in a major research effort, and we constructed a first-of-its-kind global database of populist governments, looking at over 40 governments in over 30 countries over the last decades. What we found was very concerning. Populist governments actually stay in office twice as long as non-populist ones. Some of them leave office for free and fair elections or because they respect term limits, but a greater number are indicted or leave office under other dramatic circumstances. 50% of them manage to change the constitution to give themselves a lot more power. 40% are indicted for corruption charges at some point. And even when you look at what the country looks like once they leave office, in a lot of the places, they have led to a deterioration of democratic governance. They are four times as likely as non-populist governments to lead to democratic backsliding. And in many cases, they have made the countries more corrupt, robbed people of individual freedoms, curtailed political rights. So the debate really now has a clear empirical answer. On average, populist governments do serious damage to their democracies. That is very bad news. But there's also a piece of good news, and that is that in many cases, the opposition does manage to resist democratic backsliding even after a populist government is elected. So all of this should not be grounds for complacency or grounds for fatalism. It is one more reason for us to try and fight for our democratic values. I'm really pleased today to have on the podcast Sagarika Ghosh. Sagarika is one of the most famous journalists in India. She is a television journalist, uh, the longtime host of Face the Nation there, but also somebody who has written a number of tremendously important books. And the latest one is called Why I Am a Liberal, a Manifesto for Indians Who Believe in Individual Freedom. And it makes a great impassioned case, as you'll hear in a moment, for why liberalism is a universal ideal that is as relevant in India as it is elsewhere. But we also spent a huge part of the podcast trying to understand the roots of Narendra Modi in Indian politics and the danger he now poses to the survival of liberal democracy. It's a fun conversation and one in which I learned a tremendous amount and I imagine that most of you will as well. 
Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Yasha. It's great to be here. So you've just written a great book about why you're a liberal and why that's not an exclusively Western ideal or concept. And I want to make sure that we get to that for a good part of the conversation. But I feel like we haven't talked enough about India on this podcast. India is obviously the biggest democracy in the world. And it's seeing a set of developments that to me look strikingly similar to what we're seeing in the United States with Donald Trump and with a lot of the other populists around the world. So if you can help to fill us in a little bit, what kind of figure is Narendra Modi? How did he rise and what kind of project does he have for India? How is he trying to transform the country? That's a very important question. I think Narendra Modi is exactly the kind of figure that you describe in your book, The People Versus Democracy. He is an elected authoritarian figure. You know, there have been two streams within India, Yasha, since the time that India was born, since 1947. And these two streams have been the strain of, well, a broadly patchy liberal democratic impulse. And the other strain has been the very powerful Hindu nationalism. As you know, Hindu is the majority religion and Hindu nationalism has been the other strain that uh, has existed. Now, it was the Hindu nationalist ideology, uh, someone who belonged to the Hindu nationalist ideology, who assassinated Mahatma Gandhi. As you know, Gandhi was assassinated in 1948, and the Hindu nationalists never forgave Gandhi for the partition of India, which you know happened when India was divided into India and Pakistan. So this was the Hindu nationalist anger at the partition of India, and they held Mahatma Gandhi, who I, in my book, actually have hailed as India's greatest liberal. I mean, I believe that Mahatma Gandhi was not just the founding father of India, not just the father of the nation, but also the father of Indian liberalism, if you like. In what sense was that true? Because, I mean, Gandhi is a very interesting figure because he's obviously a deeply religious man who, in a way, has quite a religious notion of politics. Um, and yet, as you're saying, uh, he, uh, it was very important to him that India should not be a Hindu nation. So, 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 so what? So, what is the nature of that secularism that shaped the the Indian Republic in its early years? Well, exactly. You know, the, the Gandhi was certainly religious, and a lot of people have debated with me on the idea that Gandhi was a liberal because some believe he was, in fact, deeply conservative. Others say he was a, you know, anarchist. But I believe he was liberal because, you know, he was very committed to pluralist ideals and secular ideas, and he believed in a separation of church and state. And he also believed in using religion to actually create liberal values. I mean, using religion to argue for equality, using the values of religion to argue for empathy, for the abolition of caste. You know, as you know, mm. caste is the big social problem in India. It's the hierarchical ordering of society. And this can be very brutal and very divisive because the upper castes have traditionally severely oppressed and humiliated. And there's been, there's been violent attacks on the section of society known as the Dalits, as the, the untouchable castes. And Gandhi was committed to the eradication of this terrible practice of untouchability and of the physical violation of people. You know, the untouchable communities were not allowed into temples, not allowed to drink water from tanks. But of course, B.R. Ambedkar, the other founder of India's constitution, the draftsman of India's constitution, in fact, he was, of course, the untouchable leader who was passionate also about the upliftment of these communities. So, in fact, Gandhi, I call a liberal because he used 
religious traditions in a way. And I think that's what made him very powerful to argue the cause of change and progress. And I think that was quite politically astute of him because he didn't go against religion. So he didn't put people off, but he used in a way, faith to achieve the better side of faith. Because, you know, India is a deeply Mm. religious country. It's a deeply pious, steeped in religious country. So he sought to create that liberal tradition of governance and secularism through religion. And that's what I have appreciated in my book. So what did the basic reality of India then look like, right? I mean, I think it's, it's a little difficult for me to get my head around. I've spent a good bit of time in India. But it is at the same time a society that under Congress rule for most of its post-war history prided itself in being secularist in certain ways. The idea of being communitarian was deeply shunned in the political elite. The idea of somebody who's a communitarian is basically somebody who just wants to impose their communities, religious and other ideas on the rest of society. And at the same time, obviously, it was a society that was deeply marked by a kind of Hindu elite. What would you say before Narendra Modi and the BJP party, which he leads, really came to the amount of power and prominence that it now has? How would you describe the sort of religious fault lines in India in 1990 or at some point around that? That's a very important point. And, you know, I I think there's a very, very important question because that really lays the context for the rise of Narendra Modi and the Hindu majoritarian government that we have at the moment. I think, you know, what the Congress Party did in the years that it ruled was that it practiced illiberal liberalism, you know, that illiberal secularism, what I call in my book, because the Congress Party is supposed to be a broadly liberal, secular, plural force, but they didn't maintain this structure and these principles well enough because, you know, what I've argued is that the founding of India in 1947 as a liberal democracy was a very noble project, but then the liberal descendants of the founding fathers really let down the liberal project. And I think the Congress Party did that. In what kind of way? What does that mean? In what ways was India illiberal in 1990? What actually happened was that, you know, one of the very important turning points in the rise of Hindu nationalism and the rise of Hindu majoritarianism was a court case called the Shabano case. Now, this was a Muslim woman who actually moved the courts to argue for a divorce settlement. You know, when there's divorce within Muslim families, the woman is entitled to her share of the alimony. And the Supreme Court granted the alimony to Shabano, to this Muslim woman. But then the then Congress government, in an attempt to win over the Orthodox and what we call the vote bank, the Islamist Orthodox elements to its side, actually the secular government, the secular Congress government, overturned this court judgment and gave in to the fundamentalist Islamist forces. So just to understand what that sets up then is that essentially the laws to which you are bound as an Indian citizen depend on the religious community of which you are part. And so what the Congress government did there is to say Muslim women essentially end up having fewer rights on their husbands than uh, Hindu women or Christian women in the country because they have their own set of community ideals and standards and we're going to defer to them. That's exactly right. I mean, in the quest for the protection of minority rights, 
What actually happened was that the Congress Party began to play footsie with orthodox extremist elements. It's not extremists, but orthodox elements within communities uh, under the guise of protecting minority rights. Now, this became a source of rage for the Hindus on the other side who said, listen, I mean, you know, we are bound by the laws of India and we are bound by, uh, we, we are following the laws of India, but look at the way the Muslims are being protected by this so-called liberal government, which calls itself secular, but all is doing is what is called minority appeasement. You know, that was a term that was used. And then the other fact that happened was that, you know, I mean, Congress governments kept making illiberal mistakes. For example, you know, the ban on Salman Rushdie's book. And I was someone who actually spoke out very strongly against it. India was the first country to ban the satanic verses. And this, again, led to the charge that it was the secular government that was bending over backwards to protect Muslim sentiment and minority sentiment and not caring enough about majority sentiments because there were paintings and books and plays being made about Hindu gods and Hindu goddesses, and nobody said anything about that. Nobody Mm. was protesting the Hindus, the rights of Hindus. Now, what had happened is before the Congress government of Rajiv Gandhi, he was the prime minister who did this, and I hold him actually very square responsible for the creation of this illiberal secularism that then led to the rise of Hindu nationalism. Mm-hmm. Preceding him was his mother, Indira Gandhi. I've just written a biography of Indira Gandhi. She was this immensely powerful prime minister of India, but she played very dangerous politics. You know, she played the politics of a religion and she went out of her way to use, you know, what is known as the Hindu card. Uh, you know, she would appeal to Hindus on a religious platform. She would appeal to Muslims on a religious platform. She was not averse to playing the politics of religion. How does that work at the same time? You know, what you do is during election campaigns in a state like Jammu and Kashmir, for example, Kashmir, which is Muslim majority, Mm -hmm. uh, she would go to the Hindu areas and she would say, you know, vote for me because if you don't vote for me, you'll vote for the other parties and they're the parties of separatists and they're the parties of the extremists. You know, making herself into this kind of mainstream Hindu leader Uh who was resisting the Muslim extremists. So she would do that in Jammu and Kashmir. Then she would go to Assam, which is a Muslim majority state, which also another Muslim majority state. And there she would try to appeal to the Muslim vote bank by using, you know, Muslim phrases and slogans that would appeal to Muslim voters there. So it was playing very dangerous religious politics. She began to do this in her time. And then her son, Rajiv Gandhi, who became prime minister after she was assassinated, uh, took this illiberal secularism to new heights. So there was the Shabano judgment, uh, which really alienated the Hindu majority community the Muslim woman judgment. And in order to appease the Hindu majority, he then, Rajiv Gandhi, the illiberal secularist, opened the locks of a disputed mosque in India, which the Hindus believe it stands on a, on a temple which was raised to the ground. And a Babur, the 15th century Mughal conqueror, actually built the mosque over this particular raised temple. I mean, that is the controversy around this particular mosque. And it's a disputed site. It's a highly religiously disputed mosque. And Rajiv Gandhi in 1989 decided to allow Hindus to practice Hindu rituals Hmm. in that mosque. Now, this was to assuage Hindu sentiment or majority sentiment, which had been alienated by the Shabano judgment. So on the one hand, he was trying to appease the Muslims through setting aside the Supreme Court judgment on on the Muslim woman. On the other hand, he was trying to appease the Hindus by opening this mosque and allowing Hindu prayers over there. What's interesting about that account is that it sounds a little bit as though you start with a principle 
And as long as the principle is applied in a relatively consistent manner, you have a way of answering charges that you're favoring one group or another. But then once you start deviating from that principle, you have two effects. One effect is that there's a counter-reaction against it, which leads to the rise of inflamed feelings in the other communities. And the other is that you suddenly say, oh, hang on a second, now I have to go and appeal to those groups. And so you're pushed into making a concession uh, on the other group, which only erodes the principle even further. And so you go from practicing and celebrating a basic organizing principle of society to continually playing management of just the right balance between concessions to each group in order to cobble together an electoral majority. As you rightly say, that you see, once you start assuaging different forms of group identities, then you really cannot uphold any kind of liberal democracy. All you're doing is appealing to different religious groups. And then once you start appealing to one religious group, then it's a matter of time before another religious group decides we're not getting enough and uh, we need our share of the pie. And this is what I argue what the big state in India has always done. You know, although the foundations of the Indian Republic were liberal, were democratic, and the constitution lays down a limited government and freedom of the individual and robust institutions and individual liberty and free press and all of that. But what has happened in practice is that through electoral politics, group identities have become stronger and stronger through successive government patronage. And as the state has expanded, as the government has expanded, it's sought to create clients with different kinds of identity groups. It's just not just religious groups, but also caste groups and language groups and different forms of groups that politicians have tried to cultivate in order to cobble that electoral majority that you spoke about. And as it's done that, it's offered different kind of SOPs. And I'll give you a recent example. There was a recently a film made on a warrior queen, a, a Rajput queen, which was called Padmavati. And the Rajput caste rose up in arms and said, this film is, you know, damaging our sentiments. And no politician had the guts or had the courage to stand up to this violent identity militia, which went on the rampage and it was burning buses and attacked a school bus and they were rioting on the streets all because of this one film. They threatened to behead the actor. They threatened to chop off the nose of the director. And they were threatening violence. They were calling for violence. That's a very specific. Threat. So there's a very specific violent threat and the state could not stand up to these people. No politician could stand up to these people because they were worried about losing the vote. So that brings us a little bit into the situation now, right? So I think we're sort of up to speed on, you know, the basic religious settlement around 1990. And that was a brilliant overview of that. So then over the course of the 1990s, in particular, you see the rise of the BJP and you see the emergence of Narendra Modi. Describe to us the nature of the BJP and the sort of social movement of the RSS, which it sort of feeds on, and the figure of Narendra Modi. How are we to understand the emergence of that kind of more openly liberal force in Indian politics? Yes, it's openly illiberal. It's actually quite brazenly illiberal. And just to carry on from our earlier point about what we were talking about, the Babri Masjid, the Babri Mosque, which we were talking about, in 1992, as you know, there was a big movement, a kind of a journey that the Hindu forces undertook from the western part of India to that mosque in Uttar Pradesh in Ayodhya. And that mosque, in fact, was demolished by these religious groups and by the religious militias, which had been galvanized by the BJP on the platform of Hindu rage. 
that you know Hindus were angry and they were raging because they had been ignored all this time by liberal secular governments. Their concerns had not been met and Muslims were getting away with everything and Muslims were taking advantage of the law and the Hindu majority was suffering in silence. So they had galvanized as a Hindu rage, which ended up in the destruction of the mosque. Now, after that, of course, the BJP continued to go, grow in strength. And now, as you rightly pointed out, the role of the RSS. Now, the RSS, I'm not sure what kind of equivalence there exists in Western society. It's really not as fringe as the Ku Klux Klan, but it is a cultural majoritarian body. It's an all-male brotherhood, which is dedicated to Hindu nationalism, which is dedicated to creating Hindutva nationalism, you know what they call a Hindutva, not Hindu, but Hindutva. So what's the, what's the difference? Uh, the difference is that Hindutva is a political ideology, draws from the writings of V.D. Savarkar, who spoke about India should not be a secular uh, liberal nation, it should actually be a Hindutva nation, a Hindu Rashtra, that is where majority Hindus establish their nation with pride and honor and they don't have anything to do with this kind of weak need, willy-nilly secularism, which was seen as a sort of westernized, liberal, you know, very Nehruvian kind of foreign import. So so is the distinction between the words Hindu and Hindutva a little bit like the difference between Islam and Islamism or between the idea of uh, Christianity itself and a sort of Christian theocracy is, is, is that essentially the... It's similar, except that the RSS, of course, is not self-carrying arms, although there are a lot of splinter groups within the Hindutva organization now which are armed and pretty dangerous. And there are certain groups within that larger Hindutva body who are now accused of killing, as you know, three rationalists, including the journalist Gauri Lankesh, who was recently murdered for her anti-Hindutva views. But, you know, I'm running ahead of myself. I mean, basically, so the RSS has been the parent organization of Hindutva ideology. It used to be a very secretive, shadowy force. It was banned several times by Congress governments. It was banned during the independence movement. It was seen as advocating violence. It was seen as advocating separation and division. But today, the RSS is center stage. Every union minister today is a member of the RSS. Mr. Narendra Modi, the prime minister, is a pracharak of the RSS. He was a, he was a preacher, you know, an RSS preacher. And they are the unmarried, dedicated Swayam Sevaks who have given their lives for the RSS. And they are part of the brotherhood and they preach the word of the RSS, that is Hindu values, Hindu nationalism, a Hindu version of history, because history writing is again seen as a kind of problem area because it's seen as dominated by leftists and liberals who have written history according to Western ideals and principles and history writing has to change. It has to be altered into a Hindutva version of history, which is reflecting the sort of urges of the Hindu majority. So, you know, all these areas are highly politicized for the RSS. And so now Modi then is a sort of slightly contradictory figure, right? Because he starts off as this RSS preacher. If I'm remembering rightly, he actually abandons his wife. He marries quite young and abandons his wife in order to become a preacher in the RSS movement. And so he has these deep links to this essentially theocratic movement. But then he becomes essentially the, the governor, we would say, in the United States of one of the biggest states in India. He becomes the chief minister of Gujarat, yes. And actually he sort of starts to base his mainstream political appeal, both within Gujarat and within the country as a whole, on being the sort of economic modernizer, right? And so he builds this weird political coalition between 
the deeply religious and the sort of resentful Hindus who are rebelling against the relatively secular order upheld by the Congress party and the sort of urban middle class that is frustrated by the economic dysfunction, by some of the corruption of the old government. So how does that work? And what is the horse and what is the cart here? Which part of Modi's political ideology and appeal is driving the other? That's a very well-analyzed synthesis, and that's exactly what he was attempting to do. But you see, before Modi came to power, I just want to give you a little bit of more context. Through the 1990s, you had the BJP rise in power, and then, of course, you had the Congress government. But then you had the coming to power of Atal Bihari Bajpai. Now, he was also a member of the RSS. He also belonged to the Hindu Nationalist Party. That was when the BJP came to power for the first time, but in a coalition government. But Bajpai was a consensus-building moderate figure, and because he was leading a coalition government, he kept the RSS slightly at bay. You know, he was able to sort of negotiate with the RSS and not allow them to interfere too much in the economy. And he actually ran not a bad government because he was hemmed in by coalition partners. He was hemmed in by allies. He could not go as far down the Hindu majoritarian route as perhaps the RSS would have wanted him to. But then, of course, he was defeated and then the Congress Party came to power. Now, the Congress Party came to power and the last years of the Congress Party, 2012-2013, were ravaged by corruption. There were corruption scandals after corruption scandals. The economy went into a nosedive. The Prime Minister, Manmohan Singh, the urbane, Oxford-educated Prime Minister, the Congress Prime Minister was seen as steeped in corruption. He was seen as weak. He was seen as that he couldn't, you know, very much like, like the Weimar regime, you know, the Weimar Republic, led by these elites who were presiding over chaos. And on the back of this chaos was this sort of strong man in Gujarat, you know, because Modi was by then the chief minister of Gujarat and was the strong man appealing to Hindu nationalism, appealing to Hindu majoritarianism, the elite, uh, the anti-elite outsider, you know, the grit Mm. of real India, sort of authentic voice of the Hindu. At the same time, you know, married to this promise of development and economics and big corporates had come to his state. He had by by then been chief minister for three terms. He had brought in uh, a lot of corporate houses into his state. He had publicized what he was doing in terms of building roads, in terms of providing electricity, in terms of being this development friendly chief minister, also with that strong Hindutva cultural identity. And at the same time, you know, fundamental to his appeal as well is very anti-elite, you know, anti-Oxford educated, what is called the Latians land elite in India. You know, Latians land is like the, the, the Washington Beltway. It's the it's the area built by built by the British architect Latians. And it's the government buildings and the big government bungalows and all of that. Yeah, so if you go to Delhi, the whole center of town is basically this lovely leafy green space with lots of one-story bungalows and so on. And that's where the sort of real cultural elite. Yes. And the Latians elite is seen as these, you know, the flimsy liberals who send their children abroad and they're the elite. But they're talking about evil people like you, right? Evil people like me. Yes. <laughs> and I don't even live in Latin's Delhi. You know, they have it all wrong. I mean, the fact <laughs> is Latin's Delhi is now being occupied by them. <laughs> so the, this was seen as a kind of Hindutva revolution against this entitled elite who was educated and who were, who were basically corrupt and who were ruling India for so long. And what have they done? And, you know, so he actually got not just the Hindutva vote when he came to power in 2014, but he also got what is what we call the incremental vote. You know, people who were voting for development because they thought he would cut through the red tape, he would cut through the horrible 
hassles of the Indian economy, the corruption, the bureaucracy, the slothfulness, the lack of energy, the sheer huge elephantine problems that exist. You know, he was seen as Mr. Fix-It, you know, what you call the savior complex, the Mr. Fix-It complex, the, the savior rides in on a white horse. He will change everything. He's the strong man, you know, as you so well described it. And patriarchal, illiberal societies in India is a patriarchal society. You know, there is this yearning for the strong man at the top and strong man, charismatic leaders uh, who will come in and who will change the system. So he became this outsider system changer, riding this, you know, white horse, riding this sort of wave of youth euphoria. My son was in, in medical school and he would tell me that all his friends were like, you know, Modi, Modi, Modi. It's like the phenomenon in Brazil, you know, the Bolsonaro and the sort of hard right nationalist, Hindu, all of that coming together in a sort of, you know, great avalanche to sweep away the flimsy liberals and their flimsy liberal ideas and their entitled rich, flimsy elite ways. <laughs> so this was this, how this revolution was posited. Now, the problem with that was that Modi came and he, you know, Modi used to talk about his 56 inch chest i have a 56 inch chest he would say huh. and this was again so this is like this is an appeal to personal strength it's to be understood in the same way in which vladimir putin sort of goes around having himself photographed you know wrestling with bears or i mean he kind of you know he has this way of swaggering around and he speaks in this bellowing voice and all this really appeals to indians because we worship power as a society you know we have these films on uh, powerful heroes and you know what we call the dabangs and the bahubalis and there are all these powerful male figures who uh, you know change the immediate overnight make the universe a better place so there's this worship of power and so he embodies that powerful male kind of figure and so he rode to power on this Hindutva majoritarian wave. As I was saying, large sections of even the middle class were really swayed by this rhetoric that, you know, Hindus are victims in their own land. Hindus are being prosecuted by these so-called liberal secular governments who are bending over to please Muslims. Hindus have no place to go. What's going to happen to the Hindus? Nobody cares about the Hindus. So this huge victim complex that had been building over the years that secular governments are far too soft on minorities and far too soft, you know, as you have with the immigrant situation in the US. All the sort of Fox News narrative that really the United States has become racist towards white people, that we've gone so far in trying to redress racial injustice in this country, that really the people who are now deeply disadvantaged are sort of the members of a majority. And so you need somebody who's going to give voice to the majority finally and sweep aside all of these kind of obstacles that stand in the way of a majority expressing itself in a certain kind of way. That, you know, white men are the new enemy and, you know, that everybody, you know, every, Democrats hate white men. That sort of rhetoric, that the Hindus are the hated figure, the majority is hated, the majority is the minority, the majority is being oppressed. So all this kind of rhetoric went into the rise of Modi. So Modi is a Hindu nationalist. He's a self-declared Hindu nationalist who rode this wave of popular disenchantment with the corrupt Congress regime, with disenchantment with the appeasement policies of so-called liberals. And he became this Mr. Fix-It, who uh, many people thought would just change the system with one silver bullet. And so when Modi comes to power, taking this sort of crushing majority, huge political success about three years ago, and what's his record been? On the economy, has he modernized the country in the kind of way in which he promised? And more importantly, how worried do we need to be 
about him from a perspective of liberal democratic institutions? Has he taken steps towards putting Hindutva into practice? And has he taken steps in the way in which other authoritarian populists have around the world into abridging the rights of the opposition, into attacking minorities, into actually consolidating power into his own hands? You've described the phenomenon perfectly. What happened with this great Hindutva revolution was that Modi came to power and the middle class hoped that, ah, suddenly now the economy would open up and we would get lots of free market reforms and we'd get investment and there would be feel good and the economy would boom. And yes, okay, we would have Hindu nationalism, but that's okay. At least the economy would do well. Now, the thing is, the economy under Narendra Modi has turned out to be a disaster. He's turned out to be a control freak. He's an authoritarian. He controls the entire government in a highly centralized structure, the focus of which is his own office, the prime minister's office. It's a huge mega state. It's what I call the big state with massive socialist style schemes of building toilets, creating startup India, skill India, digital India, you know, these big socialist type, massive big government schemes. So he's not actually an economic modernizer. In fact, he's an economic controller. He's a centralizer. One of his slogans is Congress Mukt Bharat, meaning annihilate the opposition, free India of the opposition. So in his early days, he tried to literally finish the opposition. He would not attend parliament. He would engage in excoriating battles with political rivals from the post of the prime minister. He's a domineering, highly controlling figure who is the very opposite of Vajpayee, who was accommodating and consensus building. So the big issue right now has just been the resignation of the central banker. We have the Reserve Bank of India and the head of the Reserve Bank of India, Mr. Urjit Patel, has just resigned because he feels there's too much government interference. There have been noises. The, the Supreme Court, the courts have been extremely vocal. Many former judges have spoken out about how judges have been pressurized by the executive. There's a huge amount of pressure on the civil service and the media is literally crawling. I mean, I am perhaps, you know, one of the few journalists in India who is public enemy number one, because I believe in independence of journalism. And you've seen the way I'm attacked and I'm trolled and attacked on social media. And there's me and a handful of journalists. There's a very crusading and brave website called The Wire, which is doing extremely good work. And there are lots of other websites. But the press is emasculated in India today. You know, as I've written in my book, India's press calls itself the free press, but institutionally it is shocking and dreadfully weak. And certainly if people don't like the shouting on Fox News and some other cable news shows in the United States, I have to say, as, as in many other things, India has us beat hands down. I mean, they have sort of nine different people beamed into a show simultaneously, all shouting at each other and often shouting in unison at the opposition. It's quite a scary sight to behold. But how worried are you about this? I'm very worried. I'm very worried. That's why I've written my book. <laughs> I'm very worried. So on the good news, right, just a few weeks ago, there was five state elections uh, across India. Yes. Um, and it was actually a great success for the opposition. And in particular, in three of the states, yes. including, for example, in Rajasthan and Madhya Pradesh, in which the BJP had governed for over a decade, we lost to a Congress party. So do you think that there's a real concern that by the time that India votes in 2019, the makings of a free and fair elections will no longer be in place? Or do you think that actually BJP will be put into a place, Modi is likely to lose power and things will sort of go back to the status quo ante? 
Well, as you rightly point out, the BJP has lost in these major state elections. And, you know, a lot of a lot of Indians across the board, I think, have breathed a huge sigh of relief. Not because, you know, we're crazy about the Congress or we want the Congress to come, but basically because the democracy needs more than one party, right? I mean, we can't have one party rule and one, you know, elected dictator calling the shots and steamrolling the institutions and taking over the entire political space. So, yes, people have breathed a sigh of relief. These have been wafer-thin victories, but the BJP still has a very strong presence on the ground. So I think they are still a fighting force and they still might, you know, have a good showing in the 2019 election. But, you know, more than that, Yasha, I think what needs to happen is the strength of Indian democracy has to be restored and we all have to fight to restore it because it's taken a beating over these last four years. I mean, the role of the RSS in whipping up anti-democratic sentiment, you know, just a few hours ago, I announced our chat on Twitter and uh, I said that, you know, India was founded as a liberal democracy and where is that liberal democracy today? And a huge number of people wrote into me immediately saying, did we get a choice on whether we wanted to be a liberal democracy or not? I, you know, somebody said, well, if I had the vote, I would say we want to be a Hindu democracy. We wanted to be a Hindu nationalist democracy. We didn't want to be a liberal democracy. So, you know, the very fundamentals of the idea of India are being questioned right now. And I think a lot is at stake because, you know, it would be a tragedy if India ceased to be democratic. It's a great liberal democratic experiment. It's a democracy in a land where people are poor and people are illiterate and democracy is delivering for a lot of people. So I think it would be a tragedy if India ceased to be a democracy and if democracy died in India. Well, I certainly agree on that. I think what's great about your book, which I really recommend to my listeners, is the way in which it defends the idea of what it is to be a liberal and why it is so relevant to India. And it goes against an argument which some of those people you just mentioned on Twitter are making, who are saying, well, actually, I want a Hindu democracy and this liberal democracy is this foreign import that I was never consulted about. It also goes to the heart of an argument that I increasingly hear in parts of a political discourse in the United States, from people who essentially say, you know, liberal ideals, which perhaps in the United States, some people might say the ideals of the founding fathers, were always implemented so imperfectly and so unjustly, and they are so much a creation of Western white civilization, that, you know, in a country that is increasingly diverse, those aren't the right principles. And certainly Americans and Europeans shouldn't hope for other countries to become liberal because that's just a form of cultural imperialism. And so if a majority of Indians decide to choose to be a Hindu country, then what's wrong with that? And what I understand your response to this is that, no, the idea of being a liberal is a universal idea. It's not a Western idea. It's not a white idea. But why not? What is it about that idea that is universal? And why is it that do you embrace that idea with without being deterred by that argument. You know, I embrace that idea because I think that that is the idea that is going to successfully hold India together. Because, you know, when you have so many religions, so many languages, so many castes, so much injustice in our society, so much oppression, so much division, you really need liberal democratic values to actually make the thing work. Because I celebrate cultural diversity, because I celebrate cultural identity, and because I celebrate the right for every person to celebrate their culture and their religion, I believe that we have to adhere to the basic liberal framework because if we don't adhere to the basic liberal framework, then, you know, we're going to have religious battles, we're going to have 
have violence, we're going to have wars, we're going to have open discrimination, because then it will be, you know, my culture versus yours. So when you have such a dizzying variety of people living together in the same subcontinent, you're going to have to have a basic set of rules. And as you rightly say in your book, you know, democracy is not about majority rule, it's about norms, and it's about rules and it's about processes and it's about certain rules of democratic life and that's what we have to accept because if we don't accept those then you know we will just descend into civil war if everyone is busily trying to defend their own culture at the expense of others and you know what is happening in identity politics in India today and this is again being created by the big state because it's patronizing identities is that you know we're defining identity against the other person I'm a Hindu because I hate Muslims I'm a upper caste person because I I hate lower caste. I'm a lower caste person because I hate upper caste. So we're deciding identities against each other. Now, this is again uh, something that our constitution, which actually, you know, well, I call my book a manifesto for individual freedom, but our constitution, the constitution on which India is based, the constitution that is the blueprint of modern India is a manifesto for individual freedom also. And, and, and it lays down basically that you cannot have anyone pushing his own partisan political ide- ideology through the agencies of the state. The state exists as a neutral body with certain laws, certain rules, certain institutions, and those have to be preserved. Because if they're not preserved, then we, the whole subcontinent will just descend into pitched battles and pitched wars over identity. That's an impassioned plea and a very strong argument. I mean, I think what strikes me in what you say is that there's sometimes criticism against liberals that they don't take the importance of religion or the importance of uh, ascriptive identity seriously. But we're not these sort of abstract individuals who come into the world without any commitments, without any kinship networks, and that therefore liberalism fails to understand something that's central to human life. And what I hear in your answer is that that's precisely not the case, that if you recognize how important religion and cultural belonging is to people, then you have to allow them to both live that out to the fullest, to give importance to that, to form these groups, to worship freely and so on, and to have an underlying set of rules which allows different communities like that to coexist. And so the project of liberalism is not to make everybody secular, it's not to make everybody go beyond their own groups, it is to give a principled answer to how human beings can have a freedom to invest meaning in their groups or invest less meaning in their groups and how we can have these groups coexist at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, you have that in the United States, right? I mean, you have such a, you know, it's, it's called the salad bowl. I mean, in the, in New York and so many communities existing together and you have different festivals and different cuisines and different cultural ways of being, but everybody adheres to the same set of rules and, you know, and thereby coexist. And those rights are protected. I mean, my rights are protected because there is a structure that protects my rights as long as I don't try and impose my freedoms on you and my freedoms end where yours begin. Those are the rights that are guaranteed in our liberal constitution. So now, unless we adhere to a basic structure, to a basic set of principles, you know, I I think it's going to be difficult. And which is why I kind of slightly audaciously have actually even harnessed certain principles of Hinduism to my idea of liberalism, because I believe that there are principles within Hindu traditions, as in all religious traditions, actually, that support the liberal argument. What are some of those traditions? 
throughout the history of Hinduism, there has been Buddhism, a cha- which grew as a challenge to Hinduism, a challenge to the caste-based social order, a challenge to the priestly class, to a certain priesthood that insisted on privileges and rituals and to preserve its own caste privileges. So Buddhism was kind of a reform movement within Hinduism. And within Hinduism, there have been many thinkers and reformers and saints who have spoken out against prejudice and against oppression and against injustice and against violence. And there have been a procession of thinkers who have written about the evils of the caste system, who have written about the evils of caste injustices, who have written about rationalism, about the need not to be idol worshippers. You know, so there are lots of traditions within Hinduism through the centuries that have challenged caste and challenged blind beliefs and challenged superstitions. And, you know, recently what has happened is three very brave rationalists who actually, you know, well, I wouldn't call them classically liberal. They may be more on the left side, uh, you know, more on the on, on left liberals, I would say. But I call them liberals because I believe liberalism is for everyone. You know, I don't believe liberalism is just for one set of people. I believe it's for everyone and it's for all. And we all exist because liberalism exists and because our uh, structure is liberal and therefore we are free to follow our beliefs within that liberal structure. And three rationalists who actually spoke out against black magic and human sacrifice and idolatry and against very pernicious forms of religious orthodoxy. Narendra Dabholkar, he was murdered. Uh, Govind Pansare, he was also murdered. And M.M. Kalburgi, who was a professor who wrote about the need to stop idol worship in a certain form and the need to create a spiritual enlightenment within religion, he was also killed. And the murders of these three rationalists have been traced to certain right-wing extremist Hindu groups. So that's the kind of challenge that uh, liberals are up against. And through the history of Hinduism, there have been these thinkers who've arisen time and time again. You know, Gandhi was one of them. He he was very much in the Hindu tradition, but he did rise from within that tradition to question injustice and to question inequality and to question group identity and to question the overwhelming power of authority. And I think those are liberal impulses. So just in closing, how would you put the appeal of liberalism as you see it in India, where obviously the stakes are so big and so immediate, where a concept like freedom of speech is not an abstract debate, as it can sometimes feel in the United States, but one that is about the safety of left liberals from being murdered by religious forces. What do you think uh, listeners... Uh, outside India can take from that? What's the insight of a liberal tradition that perhaps we don't sufficiently appreciate or that we take for granted that we should be more aware that we need to defend? Well, you know, I think that it is the liberal tradition and the liberal ideology that gives us freedom, that gives us freedom of speech, as you rightly point out, that gives us the freedom to associate, that gives women freedom in society, that gives journalists freedom, that gives the freedom to question, the freedom to dress the way you want, to eat the, what you want to eat, to fall in love with who you want to fall in love with. All these are contested freedoms in India now. People falling in love across religions, Hindus falling in love with Muslims or Muslims falling in love with Hindus and marrying can be set upon by an irate mob and uh, be accused of doing what is called love jihad. 
you know, they can be forcibly separated. There can be street battles on this. They can, you know, there was this, this really, really happened to one woman who, who was a Hindu who fell in love with a Muslim and she was dragged to the court by her own parents. She was forced to live apart from her husband. So, you know, the basic freedoms that you in the West take for granted, the freedom to even eat what you want. You know, as you know, in large sections of India now, beef is banned. Now, there are many Hindus who are beef eaters, but by a diktat from the government, cattle slaughter has been banned and therefore the eating of beef is now frowned on in many states this is banned now i consider this a fundamental encroachment on the freedom to eat the food you want to eat so uh, movies are routinely banned books are routinely banned we have a government body which is uh, looking after movies and which is deciding what kind of words can be used in scenes you know cuss words are being censored out so the the space for individual freedom is sh- shrinking all the time. You know, Arundhati Roy, the very famous writer, has been accused of sedition. She's fighting a sedition case. There are many uh, writers today who've been accused of sedition. Uh, Students are framed with sedition charges. Minorities are really not safe. I mean, there are this, you know, what what we call the cow vigilantes, because ever since this ban on cattle slaughter was announced, we have these mobs of men who are going around the the country, pouncing on people who are seen to be, who they think are cattle traders or cattle smugglers and simply lynching them on the street. You know, I have a list of those who've been recent cases of people who've been lynched on the street because of just goon action. And these mobs, there's no word of condemnation from the prime minister. There's no word of condemnation from the top political leadership. A union minister has actually facilitated, he's garlanded people who are convicted of these cow lynching episodes. For people who are convicted that they were part of a mob that lynched a man on suspicious of cattle smuggling, and they came out of jail and a union minister garlanded them. And he's a Harvard-educated guy. So, you know, what is Harvard teaching people these days? Well, I certainly feel like I should answer for that. No, no, but that's how scary it is. I'm just saying mm. that that's how scary it is, that even this Harvard-educated guy who's actually from McKinsey, Harvard, I mean, even he has to bow before the mob, you know? And why is the mob so powerful? I mean, the mob is powerful because they enjoy political protection. And the reason why they enjoy political protection is because the politicians in power feel that the mob is actually upholding their ideology. And the mob is upholding their ideology because this is an ideologically saturated big state, which is pushing its ideology through the agencies in power. It's like the high noon of Maoism or you know, Marxism. <laughs> well, listen, I think there couldn't be a more impassioned appeal for the importance of liberalism. And what I particularly like about it is how clear you make it that this is not an ideal that belongs to one particular culture, that belongs to one particular part of a world, but that it's actually something that has even more importance, even more relevance in India today than it does probably in the United States or in Western Europe. So, uh, Sagarika, thank you for coming on the podcast and thank you for your important work. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like them. Rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter, mark the new year by making a 2019 The Good Fight calendar. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to thegoodfight at newmarker.org. Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.